we are going to dive straight into our mini two-week sermon series on Philippians 1, and we've got a lot to cover, so go ahead and turn, tap, swipe your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1, verses 19 to 30. Uh, if you need it on your pew Bibles in front of you, this is actually on page 980. And please stand with us as we read God's Word together, because we're going to dive straight into it. And so, Philippians chapter 1, verses 19 to 30. Let's all stand as we read God's Word together. I'm going to read a little bit before verse 19. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in, my, in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Let's pray together. Father, today let your word remind us of what life is truly about to be grateful for, where we can find our joy. It is in Christ, both in the victories of the gospel, but also in the valleys of trials, we can find your Son, giving us perspectives on our lives and the purpose of our hearts. Be with the preaching of your word now. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So as, as we conclude things, and we've been talking about uh, last week and this week, we're talking about gratitude and joy uh, let, let's start by playing a little game. Uh, all right, here we go. Here's the game. I, I want you to identify the name of this show. I'm just going to give the premise of the show, and you've got to name it. A person enters onto a stage filled with fear and anxiety over what the next three minutes has for him. Three minutes to justify his existence. Staring down at him are a row of judges, one preferably with a British accent, awaiting to hear his story. He had overcome adversary, adverse, adversity in his entire life and is now living a fairly normal life, but without pursuing his true passion. And so they tell him to perform, and suddenly something magical happens that causes everyone to see this individual differently. This once boring, mundane, normal person has transformed into someone extraordinary. And so when he finishes Tears are flowing from his eyes. The judges are crying too. And maybe for the first time, his passion in life is validated by more people than he could have ever dreamed of knowing. And the judges confirm with each other, each one saying to that person, I want you. The drama unfolds and heads over to the predictable commercial break 
where the viewers at home now spend the next, you know, commercial break three minutes discussing the impact. The video goes viral, and this, this somewhat normal person becomes an overnight sensation. Now, what show did I just describe? Well, if you know anything about the format, you know that I've just described the premise of The Voice, American Idol, X Factor, America's Got Talent, Britain's Got Talent, Master Chef, America's Next Top Model, So You Think You Can Dance, The Biggest Loser, Last Comic Standing, HGTV Design Star, Cupcake Wars, and of course, the, the truly regrettable Who Wants to Marry a Multimillionaire. This is a true show that's out there on TV, right? Now, now, now why are we sucked in to this format of television, right? What, what draws us there? Here, here's my guess. This, this is actually a gospel story. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, well, here you have someone who was created with a purpose, right? But through the circumstances of sin and suffering, they, up to this point in their lives, haven't lived out what they were supposed to live for. They're a nobody. Someone who's unheard. Probably even dead, we would say, Right? They have no reason to believe that they have anything to bring, filled with baggage and sin and trauma, and, and someone glorious, someone accomplished, someone who has reached the pinnacle of their field goes up to them and says, I want you. This person redeems and reclaims the purpose of their life by inviting them. By the way, an invitation they could not earn or deserve, and now they are made anew. Now they are flourishing. Now they have worth because someone else gave it to them. Do you see where I'm going here with this? This person now becomes who they are meant to be and have greater meaning and purpose. And all the pain and the trials and the criticism of the past just doesn't matter anymore. Because now they look back and reflect on all they've experienced. And all they have is now they look at their journey with gratitude and joy. This is the essence of our passage here today. Last week, we were talking about Paul's gratitude for the Philippian church and how they came alongside him in his sufferings that has risen cause for him to be joyous. But in the, this closing section of chapter 1, Paul's not done. And he's having a reflection moment about his life and the life that he longs for the church to have. And so in, in here in these 11 verses, we are going to come to the realization of, of just four things in our text here today. Four things. One, uh, Paul's gratitude for life. Two, Paul's reason for joy, and then three, the church's grateful life, and then four, the church's reason for joy. So those are our, our four points here for today. Uh, so let's start with, with Paul's gratitude for life. This is the first point here. Um, what, what does Paul have to be grateful for in this point in time where he's writing this letter? On the surface level, there's actually very little that he has to be grateful for. If, if you're familiar with Paul's story, you, you'll know that he started from the top and he went to the bottom, right? So a riches to rags story, a, sort of a reverse Drake song, right? A former Pharisee, right? And not just a former Pharisee, but the Pharisee of Pharisees, the, the Georgia bulldog of Pharisees, if you will. And, and the gospel wrecks him. His life goes from this respected Pharisee leader with authority, with power, to an itinerant preacher of the world's most hated religion in the Roman Empire. And in particular, if you're familiar with the book of Acts, when he visits a city called Philippi, uh, it doesn't go well for him the first time that he's there. He's imprisoned. And so he has to politically maneuver himself to get out of prison, and now he's left traveling city to city, going through persecutions, trials, shipwrecks, thorns in his flesh, scrapping to make ends meet by becoming a tent maker. And now, at the occasion of this letter, he's in prison once again. 
Now, don't look, like, don't look at his situation like a Christian right now, but try and imagine this as someone who was living and breathing the air of the Roman imperial culture at the time. Uh, wouldn't you feel incredibly sorry for Paul? Wouldn't you say, oh, look how the mighty have fallen? Wouldn't you say, look how shameful that is? Wouldn't you go tell your kids and say, see, this is what happens when you pursue false ideologies? That's why we should be pretty shocked that Paul begins in verse 19 by talking about how he's going to rejoice, how grateful he is of where he is right now. The shame that is supposed to accompany something like being in prison is is to have that person in prison think to themselves, I should be ashamed of where I am, and that's why I'm here. But, But to Paul, his status and the life that he used to live, he's considering all of that rubbish for the sake of the gospel. He is not ashamed because he knows that even in this moment of his life where he should be humiliated, the only validation that he needs is from Jesus. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, he says, right before verse 19. Because he knows that everything he's experiencing right now is because the gospel is going forth in a way that is transforming lives, transforming communities, bringing peace and reconciliation to God and neighbor in such a dramatic fashion that it makes everything that he's going through worth it. Now, you might ask yourselves, how can Paul have this kind of confidence? What's the grounding for his hope? Well, it's the gratitude that he has for the church and for what Christ has done for him. Look at now the full text of verse 19. For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit, so he's thanking the church of Jesus Christ, that what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. Now, Paul is not being naive when he's showing gratitude for his life and where he is right now. He's not trying to fake it until he makes it. He's not trying to display some false sense of the power of mental positivity. No, he's recognizing that the Christian story is ultimately one that points to vindication and redemption. Not because of the current circumstances of the life that Paul is living right now or wants to live or has lived in the past, but rather because of the life that Jesus has already lived for him on his behalf. Jesus has promised deliverance to those who trust and follow him. Jesus has taken away Paul's sin as a murderer to Christians. Jesus has given Paul his spirit to guide him into the church to pray for him. This is why, if you look at verse 19, it has echoes of the book of Job, chapter 15, verse 16. In fact, it's almost word by word the same verse, intentionally. Because the Jewish audience he's writing to would have been very familiar with this idea And saying in the same way that Job trusted that everything was happening to him for his deliverance, Paul was trusting that it would work out for him because Christ had already bought it for him. And this gratitude for life, notice in verse 19, is twofold. It's through the encouragement of the church and God's provision of the Holy Spirit. So much that that he says that there is nothing that he has to be ashamed of, no matter what happens to him, whether by life or death, in verse 20, that Christ is going to be exalted in his body. Christ is going to be exalted in his body. Now, notice what Paul is not saying here in this text. Paul is not saying that Christ will be exalted if his ministry is well accepted. Paul does not put conditions on what he achieves for Jesus in this life to dictate whether or not Jesus will be exalted. He knows that Christ will be exalted in him because of God's work in him, not the success of his ministry. 
He knows that God could bless him like David for sure, but he also knows that God could seemingly bless him with the fruitlessness of Jeremiah. But he doesn't care. His life is going to be used no matter what by the God who called him. And this is what leads to his big conclusion, the verse that has encouraged martyrs, missionaries, and those who have faced unimaginably difficult circumstances in every generation of the church. This sort of like capstone verse. The verse that you put on all your statuses and all your Facebook walls, right? Verse 21. For me to live, as for me, to live is Christ. and To die is gain. That's his conclusion. Paul's gratitude for life gives him so much freedom that he recognizes that whether he lives for God or God calls him home, he wins. In other words, Paul is playing with house money here. Now, um, some have assumed that Paul is being some kind of a, some kind of like a fatalist here. Uh, this isn't suggesting that Paul wants to die. He's not being suicidal here or having suicidal ideation. It, no, Paul is is not looking for all those things. Rather, he's just saying that Paul has a reason for joy. Paul has a reason for joy. This is our second point here. Now, you have to understand that this word for joy in the original language is not talking about an emotional swing. It's not something that you sort of muscle through in the midst of difficult times or something that you delude yourself into thinking during excruciatingly difficult circumstances, right? It doesn't work. I mean, have you ever seen someone try to exhibit fake joy? It's, it's really painful to watch them, right? It's like that one meme of the dog sitting in the house and he's surrounded by this fire and he's sort of smiling and he says, this is fine. And like, you're like, this, this, that's, that's not, that, there's something really off about that. That's not the joy that Paul is talking about here. That's not the joy that Paul is referring to. Uh, all throughout the Old and New Testament, joy isn't a hard-pressed, knuckled emotion But joy is a quality. Put it this way. uh, Joy is a character trait. It's a marker of God's people who are transformed by grace. So it's not an emotional thing. It's a quality. It's a character trait. It's a response to the word of God, which tells the story of the gospel of Jesus, that the freedom that one has is from someone who believes that someone who can do things for God, it transforms them into someone who is doing things for God because of joy, not of guilt, not of obligation. And that's a really important distinction. If joy is something that you earn, then you mentally force yourself into it. And that's why many of you feel like just in despair. There are times in my life where I feel like I'm in despair because I'm trying trying to force joy. But if God has no role in your joy, then really what you've done is you become a savior to yourself. Let's, let's just put it another way, because I, I really want to kind of highlight this, right? Have you ever tried to stay really happy for a long time by forcing yourself to stay really happy for a long time? And, and what happens there, it's, it's, it's really exhausting. Uh, have you ever tried to stay at a party, you know, maybe at like a boss's boss's house where you're expected to stay there, and you have to try to keep the momentum for everyone's happiness going? And what happens around like hour three or four, Right? It just wears you out, and especially if you're an introvert in this room, right? All right, so extroverts, you might have like six or seven hours before you really start to feel it, right? That's why it starts hitting you. But why do you stay? 
Because the implication is that you're not secure in the relationship with the people in the room to simply go out on your own terms, right? But if you're living in the freedom of joy that Christ has bought for you on the cross, the freedom to know that you are a recipient of grace rather than having been rewarded grace, then there is nothing that life can throw at you to rile you up anymore. You know that you're secure, not because of you, but because of the one who loved you. You walk differently. This is why Paul goes through his discourse in verses 22 to 26 about the dilemma in his life. He, he longs to see his Redeemer. Paul wants his joy to be made complete with communion with Christ. He wants to be in the presence of his Savior, to finally have his hope realized. But he knows that as long as he does have life, there is a necessary call that Christ has given him to live in a manner that the glory of God will increase because of the life that he's living right now, the life of joy. Verse 25, convinced of this, I know that I will remain in this life and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. Your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. You know, Paul's not being arrogant here. He's not saying, oh, because on the account of me, all of you will exalt Christ. No, what he's recognizing is that the joy that comes freely through the grace of God in his life will only shine the light of Christ on others. So much in a way that he is being used by God, he's not going to receive the glory of that. It's going to go to God himself. So Paul isn't rattling off his conversion numbers. He's not giving his salvation per minute percentage to bring out the glory of himself or even his ministry. He's living out a life of joy that can only be direct praise and rejoicing to Christ himself. Now, why is Paul spending this time in these verses talking about his gratitude for life and his reason for joy? Those first two points. Well, it's because he wants the church to understand these very same things. And this is what leads us to our third point, uh, the church's grateful life. In verse 27, whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, given everything I just said, um, alarm bells might be going off in your head right now. All right. Given what Paul has just wrote about his gratitude for life and the reason for his joy not coming out of his own worth, but the worthiness of Christ, how are we to understand this verse that says now Paul's command to the church is saying, live in a manner worthy of the gospel? Is it one of those sort of theological sleight of hands that deceptive religious people say, you know, I'm living by grace, but you got to earn it? Right? Is, is, is Paul being hypocritical here? How do we explain what's going on here? And we have to be really careful here because so many Christians have lived in despair from how the gospel is lived out if you get this verse wrong. And it's important that you don't fall into the extremes that usually accompany trying to figure out what this verse is saying. So the first extreme is you're either taught, sometimes by very well-meaning Christians, well, you know, if you don't live your life in a worthy fashion, you don't deserve the gospel. I mean, Jesus' blood is so precious. How dare you live your life this way? Don't you know that you can lose what Christ has given to you? You better shape up. You better get better. Be worthy of the worth that God has given to you. But, you know, oh, by the way, it's all by faith alone and grace alone. All right, we, we want to be, be Protestant here, right? Uh, how many of you, just by show of hands, have heard some version of that growing up, right? Good amount of people in this room. Don't you just feel this imminent threat hanging over you. It doesn't feel like grace at all. And the problem with this approach of living in a manner that is worthy, if it, as though it depended on you, is that the weight of sin that we know in our hearts and mind is lifted by the salvation of Christ on the cross is now put back on our shoulders. And there will never be enough in that manner. 
You'll burden something on your shoulders that it was never meant to carry. This was Martin Luther's problem, by the way, in the Reformation. He knew very intently the nature of his own sin, and he just felt this crushing weight on top of him. But there is an opposite problem, isn't there? This is the second extreme. There's no way you can earn salvation, which is absolutely true, but now what they say, life is inconsequential as a Christian because it doesn't matter. A million years down the road, you'll be with Jesus. So just wait for Jesus to come back. Relax. Keep calm and carry on. Sin like crazy. It doesn't matter. But this, too, is a horrible approach to understanding what to do now in the life and leads to a deep passivity in the, of the gospel of Christ. Think about the implications of this. If you live this way, you believe the gospel is the greatest news in the world that won't actually change your life in any meaningful way. So how does Paul frame this verse in a way that doesn't compromise the gospel, either in legalism or lawlessness? In order to answer this question, we need to realize something about the church of Philippi that Paul is aware of, and he, 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 he's, he believes this cultural concern is something so important that he wants to address it here. This, by the way, is a cultural concern that, that is weaved all throughout Philippians. Uh, once you see it, you can't unsee it. And that's this. Uh, I, it, it, it's what it meant to be a citizen of Philippi. Philippi was a city that had special rights and honors due to them because in 42 BC, before Christ, they had been given the honor of becoming this distinction of being a Roman military colony city. Now, in the ancient Greek and Roman context where Rome was the superpower and the empire was very much in control of what happened in the conquered world, there was no higher status than having your city being chosen to be a Roman military colony. The benefits were huge for those who became its citizens. Uh, there were property rights that gave you honors above those of a lesser class. Uh, you could not be imprisoned in a non-Roman way. You couldn't be crucified. You could vote. You had special marriage privileges. And perhaps the best benefit of being a Roman citizen in the Roman Empire, you didn't pay any taxes. Pretty nice, right? Like, it was all the heathens that had to pay taxes. But if you were a citizen of Philippi, you paid zero taxes. Now, if you were in Philippi at this time, you were just living by nature the right of your citizenship. It was just like breathing. You walked differently. It was natural for you to assume your rights and live in a manner that was worthy of your right as a citizen. Now, Paul knows this about Philippi, and he's telling them, yes, you are in Philippi, but you are a citizen of a different kind of kingdom. And when he's telling them to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, he's telling them, live out your lives in gratitude, knowing that you are a citizen of the kingdom of God. Conduct yourselves, in the original language of the text here, is more of a, a walking out of who you already are. So Paul is saying, in other words, live out a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ is simply living out who you already are in Christ Jesus. So what does that look like? Paul gives three examples in verse 27. Standing firm in the spirit of unity, pursuing together to encourage each other in faith in the gospel and not living in the fear of persecution that's coming their way. Paul is trying to give them practical ways of what walking like this looks like. They are walking in gratitude, in other words. They're not trying to earn their citizenship and keep it because they already have it. They're not just sitting on their hands as citizens, but rather they are living their lives differently knowing that they belong 
with the kingdom of God. And when the church does this, does this well, church living in gratitude, this leads to my last point, they have the very same reasons for joy that Paul has, and they can overcome anything that life throws in their way. Paul concludes this section with, on the surface level, a bit of a downer, but actually when you dive into these last three verses of chapter one, you will find actually incredible encouragement for joy. In verse 28, it is seen that the church should expect opposition to its missions, to its mission as citizens of the kingdom and told not to fear opposition. In other words, Christians should not be surprised when the city or the culture around them opposes their mission. Uh, they shouldn't be shocked when they think that people aren't comfortable with the teachings or mission of Christianity. Rather, um, Paul's tone and tenor here is that they should be moved to compassion and grace for their accusers, their, their opposers. Why? Well, Paul's very clear on this. Uh, they will face their end by by, uh, in destruction by opposing a Christianity. So this is meant to be very sobering for the Philippian church. It's not meant to puff them up. This is meant to give us a greater heart for mission, evangelism, sharing the news of Christ. It's not to give us arrogant and prideful and combative hearts. Think about it this way. Um, have you ever looked at someone and you know that the decisions in their life are ruining them? And you see slow, slowly, painfully, that these decisions are leading them down a pathway of no return. And the reaction you have for this person is not shock or disgust. It's, it's compassion. It's worry. It's, it's a care for their soul that they would see their way out of it. And it's a reminder to you of the grace that you've been given in your life. This is the joy that Paul is calling for the church to realize. But it's also to see that the response to those who oppose Christianity isn't for the church to be scared that it is happening, but rather for the church to be like Christ and run to the lost in love. And that's what leads Paul to remind the church that joy comes through experiencing and embracing Christ's sufferings as their own, as their joy comes in knowing that they are walking in the footsteps and the suffering and the cross of our Savior. You know, uh, many of you are aware of the preaching ministry of Charles Spurgeon, uh, called the Prince of Preachers back in the 19th century. Um, at 22 years of age, 22, Spurgeon's popularity was so heralded in England that they constantly needed to try and find new venues to accommodate the large crowds that would come to hear him preach. So a year after he arrived at London's South Side, they needed the largest place they could hold, which was 12,000 people in Surrey Music Hall to hear this 22-year-old man preach. It was supposed to be the biggest and largest congregation ever in England to hear someone preach the gospel. And what happened on that Sunday in October would shake Spurgeon's life forever. The service had only begun for a few minutes when someone, uh, and historians are... Um, incompetent about this. Maybe someone who was opposed to Spurgeon's ministry, maybe just someone who was just freaked out. Uh, someone erroneously yelled, fire, the place is falling. It left the congregations to run for their lives and flee the building in mass, and seven people on that Sunday were trampled to death. The emotional wreckage from this incident would haunt Spurgeon for the rest of his life. But just a mere two weeks after this event, Spurgeon gathered enough courage to preach in front of his congregation again. This time, even more people came. 
All right, so Satan has his plots and only just expands the gospel. More people came to hear him preach and preached on Philippians, on suffering. His call to the church was to see that our sufferings, when we embrace whatever the Lord has called us to, is actually a sign of something greater. And, and I want to read uh, a portion of this sermon where Spurgeon is talking about the sufferings of Christ because it's just so good. This is what Spurgeon preached. When Christ died, a God is groaning on a cross. Does this dishonor Christ? No, it honors him. Each of the thorns become a brilliant in his diadem of glory. The nails are forged into his scepter. His wounds do clothe him with the purple of empire. The treading of the winepress hath stained his garments, but not with stains of scorn and dishonor. The stains of embroideries are upon his royal robes forever. O Christian, sit down and consider that thy master did not mount from earth's mountains into heaven, but from her valleys. It was not from the heights of bliss on earth that he strode to bliss eternal, but from the depths of woe he mounted up to glory. Oh, that's so good. Do you see what Spurgeon is saying about joy? Humiliation always leads to exaltation in Christ's kingdom. Suffering and suffering for Christ is to know Christ's glory intimately in such a way that you aren't looking to suffer, but when it comes, you know that Christ will be made more glorious because of it. This is the joy that awaits the church. This is the joy that Christ had as he was heading to the cross. This is the joy that Paul wishes for and loves for his beloved church to understand because he doesn't know when he might see them again. This is the gratitude that Paul wishes for the church to know how much he loves them because this is how much Christ has loved him. Friends, my great prayer for all of us is that we be the people of God who live out the gospel, not of obligation, not of duty, not out of status, not out of potential reward, but we live as citizens of the kingdom of God because we know that Christ has loved us dearly. That the only thing flowing out of us is gratefulness for our Savior and joy to face whatever lies ahead. The God of the universe looks at us on that stage, looking to be chosen by someone. And he looks at all of our flaws and imperfections, tainted with our sin. And he sits in his judge's chair and he says, I want you. And sends Christ to heal us. When we realize this, we will realize that it is not we who live, but Christ in us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. A word that grounds us in true gratitude and joy. Lord, for my brothers and sisters here who have been trying to white-knuckle it, who have been trying to force themselves into happiness and seize the desperation that comes from it, Father, may they cast their burdens unto the shoulders of Christ. Lord, that it would give them perspective on their sufferings and trials, but more importantly, it would lead them to a life worthy of the manner of walking in the gospel as one who has been chosen and a citizen of the kingdom of God. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen.